locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song in my songs. Hello and welcome like to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me tonight, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my friend, me, Mr. Mark Daly. And Mark, we have been, well, we haven't been away. We've been recording podcasts and creating content, but the Formula One circus has been away for four weeks for a month. But we are back with a banger of a race this weekend. We are going to Azerbaijan, we're going to Baku. We have a sprint race, but before we get into that, my friend, how the heck are you? I'm good, man, considering this is what the pit lane start for this podcast. We've had some technical <laughs> issues, and, and we're, we finally struggled out of the pit lane in, what, fifth gear? We're kind of uh, working our yeah, way around, yeah. but it's just uh, turning out to be one of those nights. But hey, I, I'm great. I'm really excited uh, that we're, we're back to racing this weekend. After a month-long break, it just uh, it, it came far too quick. Far too soon into the start of the season. And just when I felt like we were hitting our groove after three races, we're taking this extended break. And I feel like I have to go back and relearn everything that happened to the first three races of the year, all the preseason testing. But we're good. We're, we got your back. Everyone, hey, we Daly, got your back. This might we're be gonna, the yeah. perfect time to tee up your next five weekends. So this weekend, <laughs> as we alluded to, we're in Baku. We're in Miami the week after, so Azerbaijan, April 30th, Miami, May 7th. We get two weeks off, and we're in Imola. A week after Imola, we're in Monaco, and then a week after Monaco, we're in Spain. We have five races in the next six-race weekend. So, you know, we, we talk about the fact that, hey, it was unfortunate we didn't go to China this year, and we got this longer break, but boy, yeah. do we have a ton of Formula One to talk about over the course of the next five or six weeks. It's going to come fast and furious. How's that for a... Uh... There you go. Yeah, yeah there was that uh, Universal <laughs> Studios. I'd like I'd like our our commission for that plug. Thank you. We, we should just kind of like move along because I can hear the groans, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. just uh, coming all from all that's over. That's from but, my uh, yeah, family upstairs. That's not even from the listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's from my family upstairs as well. Anyways, uh, before we get into it, we're going to be uh, give a couple of shout outs here. First of all, to JT the Human, the incredible artist that uh, created our opening intro music here. Also, the Racing Exclusives uh, website, racingexclusive.com. If you want a unique and authentic Formula One merch, go and check them out. And also the Race Weekend magazine, the T-H-E Race Weekend R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Use our promo code ScuderiaPod at checkout to save at 10%. And we got some interesting stats here. And Team LH is not going to like this one too much. So Lewis has now gone 503 days without a win. And that's longest or longer than Max's uh, biggest uh, delay between wins, which is 502 days from Spain 2016 to Malaysia 2017, right at the start of Max's Formula One career. That is absolutely incomprehensible. I can't wrap my mind around that stat. That just... Um, I, I, I don't even know where to take, with, uh, take it uh, from there. But what's even more mind-boggling is the next stat that you pulled up. Over the course of his career, Sebastian Vettel rocked more than 195 different helmet designs on his lid during his Formula One career. That, that is, I don't know which of those two stats is more mind-boggling. I'm going to go with the former rather than the latter, but Seb was always pretty creative and always liked to, to go with the special motif uh, you know, on his helmet for different races. And then finally, we got to go here. We got to go here. I know like this is one that's been going around in the group chat the last several days. Fernando Alonso and Taylor Swift, are they a thing? It sounds like maybe they are, but uh, I don't know. 
If, I mean, if last they are, I nobody's, checked, yeah. <laughs> nobody's acknowledging it. And and Fernando has had the opportunity to put the pin in this rumor and has obviously given it a wink and a nod, which I think is a little bit fun because it, we could drag out this storyline a little bit longer. But wouldn't that be just on the back of his back-to-back-to-back podiums and the rejuvenation of his career with his move to Aston Martin, a link up with, with Taylor Swift would just be something else entirely. And they're both incredibly transcendent stars at what they do and in their industries. And while there's very little to no likelihood that this is real, the fact that people are playing (laughs) along with it and nobody's coming out to outright, outright dispute it gives us all a little bit of hope, I think. Yeah. But you know, like there there is like the opportunity that their, their worlds intersected at one point because Taylor was the, like the headline act at CODA several years ago before, before even drive to survive became a thing. So, I mean, there is that that opportunity that uh, that they could have you know met at some point in the past and you know but uh, yeah that's a fun one to to talk about but Fernando no 41 42 41 is something like 41 yeah. only a year behind Felipe Massa who is uh, celebrating a 42nd birthday and I was kind of surprised you know like when I saw that I'm like geez I didn't realize Felipe is that old and then at the same time I was like. No, I didn't realize that. I thought Felipe was older than that kind of thing. That, that I, I was this my weird reaction. Kind of like, yeah, so when I, when I yeah. saw that pop up in my Reddit feed, I was like, he's only 42? Because yeah. we, we've got this new benchmark of greatness in terms of being able to perform at a high level in your 40s in Fernando Alonso. And it feels mm-hmm. like Massa's been out of the sport forever. So I, I suppose Massa had retired the first time at the end of 16 when he was with Williams. And he came back in 17 when Bottas went to Mercedes. So his last full season of Formula One would have been 17. So I guess he's been out of the sport for five or six years. Of course, we've begun to cover the the lawsuit associated with Crashgate. So he's back into Formula One headlines and top storylines and things like that. But yeah, it's remarkable that he's only 42 and Fernando Alonso is 41 and still chasing and winning podiums in Formula One. Very cool, eh? Very cool. Now, this next one that you have is, is pretty cool, this next stat. So, out of all the 20 drivers on the Formula One grid right now, so their first teams, and this uh, this is a very interesting stat, who started where? So, Fernando Alonso, we'll start with uh, Fernando because uh, he's kind of like, well, well, we were just talking about him, obviously. He started way back when in tw- 2001 with the Minardi F1 team, so they're not around anymore. Esteban Ocon's first team was Manor Racing, also not around anymore. And then three drivers who started their first uh, their, their careers with Sauber slash Alfa Romeo. Those drivers include uh, Joe Guan Yu, Charles Leclerc, and Sergio Perez. Now, four drivers that have started their Formula 1 careers at McLaren include Oscar Piastri, who has a whopping three races under his belt. Lando Norris, that has three races plus many more under his belt. Kevin Magnussen, the the Haas driver, started his career back at uh, McLaren. And then the seven-time world champion himself, Lewis Hamilton, started his career with McLaren way back in, what, 2006, 2007? 2007. Yeah, it's been a long time, right? And then five drivers started their careers at Alpha Tauri slash Toro. So that includes uh, Yuki Tsunoda, uh, Alex Albon, Pierre Gasly. Sorry, I'm looking at the face here. Carlos Sides, and then the current reigning two-time world champion, Max Verstappen. Now, sit down. The next list here is extensive. 
Six drivers who have started their Formula One careers six with current Williams. Driver. Six current, current drivers. Six current drivers on the grid. Six current drivers. That's correct. Thank you very much. Include Logan Sargent, who very much like Oscar Piastri has a whopping three races under his belt, which is only one less than Nick DeFries, the uh, Toro Rosso driver who has you know one more to his credit, but he deputized for uh, Alex Albon last year at, uh, at Monzo. So Nick, also technically a former Williams driver. Then you have George Russell, of course, spent several seasons with uh, with Williams, and then our our fellow Canadian Lance Stroll, then Valtteri Bottas, and then Nico Hulkenberg. All of these drivers all started their careers with uh, with Williams. Of course, George, Lance, Valtteri, and uh, Nico Hulkenberg put in substantially more time than Logan and and, and Nick DeFries did. But uh, still, that's a very very cool stat that you found, Hammy. Yes, it was okay. It was, it was. Okay, let's uh, take a look at another one before we jump into things. So, polls outside the big three teams in the hot turbo hybrid era. And uh, these are polls by non-Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull teams since 2014. So, uh, polls outside the big three start with Felipe Massa, who was driving through Williams back in, uh, in 2014, and that was at the Austrian Grand Prix. Then 2020, Lance Stroll taking a very, very memorable pole position at a very, very wet Turkish Grand Prix. And then last year, or sorry, two years ago, pardon me, uh, Lando Norris did that for McLaren at the Russian Grand Prix at uh, Sochi. And then last year, Kevin Magnussen for Haas taking the pole after a very, very memorable sprint race in uh, Sao Paulo, nicking the podium there. Very, very cool. And that was was quite the scene. Totally. And those statistics courtesy of LOPE222 on on Reddit, but it is remarkable. And I think the talking point here is when we talk about that turbo hybrid era from 2014 until the current date, the fact that only those four drivers have secured a pole outside of the big three is alarming, alarming. And again, it helps sure, to, yeah. it helps to shape the justification and rationale for the changes that the sport's gone through from a regulatory period, the last couple of years, because it's not great that that has been the extent of the non big three that have qualified on pole, but all of the memorable, like you said, I don't think we'll ever forget the Kevin Magnuson one 2020 during the peak of COVID. Of course, Lance Stroll securing that very, very wet podium or that very, very wet pole in, in Turkey is something that I don't think we'll forget anytime soon. And you on that resurface track as well, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and going back to 2014, that I kind of struggled to remember that race that that Felipe took pole in Austria. I'd have to go back and dive into into the archives. I mean, much like yourself, I haven't missed a Grand Prix in years, but I'm kind of drawing blanks on that one, and I, I don't remember why. I mean. 2014 is a year that uh, that that stands out for me because uh, that was a year that we went to a Grand Prix ourselves, and so it kind of brought like you know a different meaning to all the other races subsequently, right? So that's a, a bit of an interesting one. Okay, then uh, some news here from our good friend uh, Tim Haraney, uh, who uh, reported uh, today that um, that there's an update to the sporting technical regs uh, to an increase uh, the number of power unit elements that was and that was approved by the F1 Commission and the World Motorsport Council for 2023. ICE, turbocharger, MGUH, and K units that have been uh, increased from three to four. And, you know, I, I kind of like this, you know, to be honest, because it seems that, you know, I'm, I'm all for cost savings and not letting costs get out of control, but I think feel like it's become a little bit too, too restrictive on the amount of penalties that people were piling up, especially at the tail end of last year 
was uh, was a little bit uh, you know ridiculous. So I think that if they can uh, increase the the number of components that they're allowed to to use and keep on the shelf over the course of the season, I think that's a, a fairly good uh, thing to do. So what do you think, Cammy? You like this one or yeah, or no? I do. It is very. And somebody had made a comment on Reddit about this as well that this is it's it's an unusual time, right? That we're in force. The contract, like the season is in progress and you're amending, you're effectively amending the regulations to enable teams to access more parts before they start to accrue penalties. But the reality is these conversations have probably been going on for weeks, if not months. Sure. And and you make a great point too, which is ultimately you you want you want to have some stranglehold on the the bigger teams in terms of being able to flip out components on a almost kind of weekly basis and you do that a little bit with the cost cap but then there's also something to be said for destroying the competitive nature of the final month or the final months of the season when we're constantly cataloging which drivers are taking grid penalties because they're on their third internal combustion engine or their fourth internal combustion engine or their ninth exhaust so it, it makes sense and it also makes sense because the calendars are getting longer and longer and longer it's just it's a little bit unusual to see this this amendment happen in season but ultimately yep. i think the drivers and the teams will be satisfied there is now the the key to this though of course is that there is no increase to the cost cap so teams can take these additional components without a penalty but they cannot do so in excess of the existing cap they still have to work within the existing cost cap yeah i like it as well i think it's a, a good thing to do Okay. Um, oh, before we get to do our refresher and kind of bring everybody back to the same starting point here for the races uh, this week, I just want to give a shout out to Crabbait, who left a, a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And um, Crabbait said, quote, fun list and great insights for F1 fans. Love it. So thank you very, very much for that. And thank you for very, everyone else. And thank you to those of you who left uh, ratings on Spotify. We're at just over 384 five at the moment hoping to hit 400 soon which you know i know it sounds a little bit kind of like cheesy and corny but these ratings and reviews certainly they do a lot to, to help a very small and independent production like ourselves uh, you know rank and be noticed and you know share our love and passion for formula one so cheers and thanks to to all of you so, Mark, we're we're coming up in a break in about uh, five or six minutes or so. Well, I guess we can go whenever we want, but let's uh, just uh, jump back into it. So let's just uh, take a quick look and a refresher at uh, what we saw over the past, uh, the first three races of the season, going all the way back uh, to Bahrain on the 5th of March. And that race was won by Max Verstappen, leading home his teammate Sergio Perez, and then Fernando Alonso rounding out the podium for Aston Martin in the desert. The second race of the year that we had in Saudi Arabia was won by Sergio Perez, leading home his teammate Max Verstappen in a slightly reversed order compared to Bahrain, but Fernando Alonso still was in third place. And then just a couple of weeks ago, well, more than a couple of weeks ago now, at uh, on the 2nd of April, almost a month ago, Max Verstappen won in Australia, leading home Lewis Hamilton by just only two tenths of a second and then fernando alonso being a real regular for his third podium of the season and so that uh, sets up a world championship that looks uh, as follows we have max verstappen in first for red bull 69 points leading his teammate sergio perez by 15 points who and sergio's got currently on 54 points fernando alonso on a very decent 45 points for aston martin 
They have Lewis Hamilton and Carlos Sainz for Mercedes and Ferrari, respectively, rounding out the top five. And then in the constructors' uh, standings, we have uh, Red Bull with 123 points, uh, Aston Martin second with 65 points, Mercedes, Ferrari, and McLaren rounding out the top fives in the constructors. So, Hammy, you've busily been clicking buttons and looking away, meaning that I'm, I'm hoping you have the fantasy update. I do. Update. I do. I desperately got it ready at the last second. So fantasy as a fantasy refresher. So I think yeah. you've done a really good job of teeing up the constructors and the, kind of where we are so far in the season. But the most important thing, of course, is fantasy sitting in number one. And he's been there for a month now. Bengals bubs. Uh, number two, Charles CL. Number three, Mr. Saucy Nug. Number four, Radio Check. Number five, the bad guy one. Number six, Jesse H. Tied at number seven, Team BS and Jeff Payne. Number nine, Elon one, F1. Number 10, Nathan's team Number 11, Jim Appel, Yuki Merci. 12, Bonus DS. 13, Dream Saturday. 14, The Albon Knights. Also at number 14, Red Ton, Mart Bull. And then 16, Olays, Lenas. So obviously, we haven't seen a lot of movement there for the last month, but uh, there's obviously a significant amount of opportunity for this lineup to get shuffled over the course of the next 20 Formula One Grand Prix. And the reminder, of course, is that the stakes are huge. We have a signed one half scale Max Verstappen. World Championship helmet on the line for the winner of this fantasy pool. So remember, get your lineups locked in. Keep your eye on the pool because anything can happen at this point. And that uh, helmet, uh, that prize comes courtesy via, uh, courtesy of Tease and the crew at RacingExclusives.com. And it is gorgeous. I would very much like to keep that one for myself. But, you know, that that wouldn't be nice. That would be nice. So we will we will somewhat reluctantly just, give it so away. So the listeners know, I have had to secure and hide that away in the depths, <laughs> in the depths of Mordor to make sure that Daly can't get his hands Fair on enough. it. Fair enough. Yeah, you know, you, you're making a very good uh, reference to, uh, to to Mordor because what was my reaction when I saw it? I was like, my precious. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was very Gollum-esque. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, so uh, just uh, moving ahead, just uh, a couple of milestones just to look out for the rest of the year. Hammy, you mentioned off the top of the show that this weekend in Baku City is the first sprint race of the weekend. Then Canada Day weekend, July 1st in Austria is the second sprint race uh, race of the week. Sorry, race of the year, pardon me, followed up by uh Belgium in uh, the end of July and July 29th and Qatar. That's a big gap between uh, Belgium and Qatar. Qatar is not till the weekend of October 7th. Yeah, well, even so, even so, even the uh, with the summer break, that's a big gap. But then it's followed up by the last two. We go have a sprint race at Coda at the end of uh, October, Halloween weekend, and then followed by a week after in Brazil. Now, Brazil was epic last week, so there's going to be a lot of expectations there. It's going to be interesting with uh, some of these other ones, especially around a, a couple of very long circuits like Azerbaijan and Belgium Spa, you know, two very, very long circuits. So I kind of like the way that the, the way that they they chose some of these venues. So certainly it's going to be uh, good fun to to uh, to talk about. Anyways, we're a little bit ahead of schedule here. Why don't we just uh, jump into a quick break here? We'll come back on the flip side. We'll jump into the news here and we're going to start right off the bat and we're going to show a bit of love to a couple of of former guests here on Scuderia F1 who are now going to be starring in the new F1 Academy. We'll tell you all about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive 
eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. And Mark, I think you should tee this one up nicely because uh, these are two of your guests, uh, two of your interviews, and a pair of drivers that we are incredibly excited to see um, get behind the steering wheel in the F1 Academy and and very proud that we were able to land them here on, on this very podcast and and not just in any time recently. I mean, the two names, Megan Gilks and, and, and Hamda, I mean, they were guests here ages ago which is fantastic and so exciting to see both of them going on to to bigger and better things great news why don't you take it away from there mark yeah and and the reason that we're talking about hamda and megan is because both of them were invited to participate in the inaugural 2023 formula one academy championship or academy series and of course this is a series that is engineered managed and is being backed by formula one in the spirit of like the w series creating opportunities for women to compete at the highest levels of Formula One. And this is really designed as a mechanism to find homes for extremely capable women drivers. So you know what? Here's a platform. Here's some exposure. Here's some great equipment and some world-class infrastructure. Let's find a way to get you into a competitive championship because, of course, women are typically they, – they, they, they don't necessarily – and I think you and I have talked about this so much – so many of the, I would say, infrastructure and so much of the mechanisms that exist to support young boys and young men in open wheel racing hasn't historically existed for women. And I think the F1 Academy is going to be a tool that's going to help kind of level the playing field for some of these extremely talented women. And we're super excited because like you said, Hamdal Kobesi, who's been on the show, and Megan Gilks, who's been on the show, are both going to compete in the series. And we've got some details on the championship now. So it's going to be a seven event race calendar. So they're going to be in Austria this weekend. Then they're going to be in Valencia, Spain, May 5th to 7th. They'll be in Barcelona, Spain, May 19th to 21st. They're going to be in Zandvoort, June 23rd and 25th. They're going to be in Monza from July 7th to July 9th. They're going to be in France, July 29th to July 30th. And they're going to be in Austin at Coda from October 20th to 22nd. Now, I'm going to read here from skysports.com because they do a really good job of summarizing what those weekends are going to look like. And I quote, each race weekend will feature seven sessions of track action. They'll begin with two 40-minute practice sessions before two qualifying sessions later in the day, each lasting 15 minutes. Qualifying one will set the grid for race one, while qualifying two sets the grid for race three. Race two's grid will be set by reversing the top eight drivers from qualifying one. Races one and two, races one and three will both be 30 minutes long plus one lap. Race two is a shorter, lasting 20 minutes plus one lap race. The format, according to Abby Pulling, the format is huge for development, says Sky Sports. 
I've been fighting to get some seat time this year, and it looks like it's going to be really, really good. So very, very excited about this. And the cool thing is not only are the drivers going to get a ton of exposure, they're going to have access to world-class infrastructure, great teams, mechanics, and engineers. They're going to get to see some great tracks. Now, the problem that arose this week that is something that didn't even occur to me is what I'm going to answer next. So we actually got a listener email a couple of days ago from Gita Sharma in India. And Gita, thank you so much for reaching out. Gita writes, hello, we love your show and our family listens to it every weekend. We hope desperately that India will get a Formula One race once again. Hamilton will be happy to know that we have a MotoGP race now. My question today, where can we watch the F1 Academy races? Will it be in the F1 TV Pro app we watch via VPN? As we understand it currently, and unless things change very quickly, the F1 Academy races will not be broadcast this year anywhere, including in the F1 TV Pro app. So when pressed about this, when pressed about this, Formula One has been responding with that, hey, timings, digital timings will be available in the app and on the web, but it doesn't look like at this moment that actual race broadcasts are going to be made available, which is both shocking and incredibly disappointing because one, it does a disservice to everyone involved in that series, and it significantly undermines the effort um, that is being made to bring women to the forefront of, of motorsports in this championship. So hopefully we can continue to apply pressure, and the Formula One community can as well. But I think overwhelmingly when this realization sunk in this week, there was a lot of very disappointed fans who had expected that they were going to be able to cheer on their favorite young drivers in this series. Yeah, Mark, you're right. It really is a shame. And especially when you look at the roster of the drivers going up and down the grid, we have drivers from Switzerland, Germany, Britain, the Philippines, Canada, Uruguay, uh, with you know, uh, Hamdas and Emirati. I mean, the people from all over the world, which is uh, fantastic. And then looking here, like the ages too. Chloe Chong, 16 years old. Oh my goodness, can't believe it. And then Bianca Bustamante, 18 years old. I mean, uh, talk about uh, an up and coming uh, crop of drivers. Uh, Drivers. There's some very, very young talent in there. And, uh, you know, it, you know, I would love to be able to check it out a lot more. So hopefully there's some uh, developments there very, very soon. But again, very cool that uh, two of our, your, uh, more precisely, your our, guests, our guests, our, our guests, but um, are, are now on to bigger and better things. Very, very exciting. But uh, yeah, I like how um, Gita gave you a bit of a shout out there that uh, there's a GP race now in, uh, in India. Okay, let's uh, move along. The next story is about the new management structure that was uh, recently announced at uh, Scuderia Alpha Tauri. So there's been there's been some, you know, speculation over the last little bit that maybe the, the team was up for sale and things like that. So anyways, they've been trying to secure some long-term um, stability and continuity, and they announced a new senior um, uh, management structure that is going to be uh, put in place at the team. So anyways, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what's going on here? Yeah, this is an, an insignificant story. And we were kind of teased or we teased this one a little bit a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the fact that perhaps Franz Tost wasn't long for this world, at least in terms of his relationship to a Formula One team in an official capacity. And it also ties back to some comments from Helmut Marco a few months ago in that he articulated that Red Bull, and when I talk about Red Bull, I talk about the greater global organization that is the energy drinks maker, was taking a second look at 
AlphaTauri and the value proposition that it presented to the group. And at the time, he had spoken to the fact that, hey, look, everything's on the table with this team. Either we invest in it in its current location, we move it to the UK, we bring it closer to Milton Keynes, or you know what, maybe ultimately we decide to spin it off and and sell it. Well, a couple of revelations came out this week. One from RacingNews365.com, who's reporting that Red Bull has actually entertained offers to the team in excess of $800 million. So again, when we talk about uh, anti-dilution fees and the valuation of Formula One teams, we're now getting reports that an active team on the grid has had offers of $800 million. So what we do know is that Red Bull has refused said offers, and it sounds like they're going to significantly reinvest in the AlphaTauri team. And you and I have obviously for years talked about, one, how disappointed we are that this team exists in the function that it does effectively as a B team or a sister team to Red Bull, but ultimately that it's never been a particularly... I would say, relevant threat on the grid in terms of going out there and competing for world championships. But I think that's going to change. So a couple of big changes are going to happen, as you noted a couple of minutes ago. One, Peter Bayer is being brought in. Of course, he's a former FIA exec. He is being brought into the team as a new chief executive officer. Laurent Mekis, who's currently the sporting director at Ferrari, will be joining Scuderia AlphaTauri as their new team principal. Of course, that's going to be at a date to be announced later because as he's a current employee with Ferrari. He's going to have to go on some pretty extensive gardening leave. But ultimately, the new lineup is going to be Peter Bayer as the CEO of AlphaTauri, and Laurent Mekis is going to be stepping in as a team principal. Now, Franz Tost will continue in his role for the balance of this calendar year because they need to have somebody cover the gardening leave that is going to be Laurent Mecki at, at Ferrari, but ultimately a not insignificant shift in the paradigm that is the, the Alpha Tauri team. And I, I'll be totally honest, when, when Helmut Marco had made those comments a few weeks ago, they seemed very... Um, in Canada, we have this term hockey talkish, which is, you know what, I'm going to fill the void because I'm being asked questions and I'll say things that are very um, logical that, yes, you know, we are invested in this team. We want to grow this team. We are looking at all of the options. But it's pretty clear now that those comments that Helmut Marco made were very, very valid, which is if we're going to keep this team, if we don't sell it, if we keep this team, we are going to invest in it and we want it to be a more tangible threat on the grid. So I think with that said, these not insignificant personnel decisions that they're making should position the team to do exactly that. So again, Laura Mecki, uh, big, 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 valuable asset at Ferrari. Allegedly, Frederick Vasseur was unhappy that he was going to exit and was only content with his departure based on the fact that he was going to assume a team principal role at this team. Peter Bayer, of course, has been around motorsports and single-seater racing for an eternity. He should be able to add some real value from a sponsorship commercialization and business perspective. But it probably all leads into a second phase of this transition, which is once Red Bull has the right personnel in place to manage this team, I would expect to see that this team does get moved to the UK and will probably be based somewhere closer to to Milton Keynes. And it only makes sense that if if the Red Bull Ford powertrains facility is going to be in Milton Keynes and Red Bull is already based there and there's so much transferable technology going from Red Bull to, to Skidaria Alpha Tauri already, you might as well position the factory there because it also puts you in a more competitive position when it comes to attracting and recruiting talent to work at that team. Less so drivers, but more engineers, designers, and things like that. So definitely a not 
insignificant change with uh, Scuderia Alpha Tauri, but big news nonetheless. And I wouldn't play down that number of $800 million because, again, you and I have been talking for years now about the anti-dilution fee and getting a team like Andretti Cadillac on the grid. But if there's a team on the grid currently that's receiving offers in excess of $800 million, it really does start to put in place a baseline for the value of a new team or any team at that. Yeah, I know, right? And it is it's fascinating like when I hear like these stories that that somebody offered almost a billion dollars to an active Formula 1 team and and one that's just a mid-grid team yes, at the very yes, best. Yes. Makes me wonder like who was that group? Who was that 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 wanted to throw that money down and, and buy this team? You know, maybe it'll come out uh, in the wash at some point, but that is absolutely astonishing. I mean, considering where we were even just two years ago with the you know, the, the the rumors then that you know Andretti wanted to throw down what was it just under three hundred million dollars for, for, for Sauber? Sal- yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, that's sort of like a similar type team that you could equate to Alpha Tauri, right? So, I mean, the fact that a similar team now has had an offer of $800 million rejected by Red Bull is absolutely uh, astonishing. I, I, <laughs> I'm really, really flabbergasted by that, uh, that, that rumor or that story. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, just to mark, just uh, kind of on a bit of a Red Bull thing here. I'm not really a big energy drink guy. Like, uh, you know, if, if I need any kind of a boost, I, I I love my coffee. But over the weekend, I was in the, you know, in the store, went to go and grab something to drink. You know, I just wanted something refreshing. And I did pick up a can of Red Bull, but I was, I was suckered into it by the branding on the can. It was a special edition can with a Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, like cars on it. I figured, hey, you know, I, I have to buy this because this is the first time I've walked into a 7-Eleven here and seen something Formula One re- related. So I thought that was uh, very, very uh, cool. Okay, so now uh, let's uh, move on over to Planet F1. And this is a story from uh, Oliver Harden. And it's a rumor that uh, perhaps Liberty Media want to buy IndyCar and turn it into an American-based Formula One feeder series. Now, I'm not really too sure what to make about to this one, like opinion wise. Like, you know, I, I follow IndyCar loosely. Like, oh, I, I, I enjoy it when I get a chance to watch it. I don't have enough time to really invest and become like a like a big time fan. <clears throat> Excuse me, get a little bit uh, ahead of myself here. But I think that um, this is an interesting one, should it uh, be true. So, um, I don't know. What do you think, Mark? Do you think this is there, there's something to Oliver's story, or is this just one of these stories that just kind of pops up into the consciousness and then you know be quickly forgotten a, a week or two weeks from now? It's a story that's popped up a couple of times, though, right? And I think in part because there's probably endless conversations about it being a logical business decision for for Liberty Media, right? And Liberty Media is a big U.S. media rights company. And typically, you show value or you show encouragement to your shareholders by showing growth. And what better way to show growth than to buy an existing open wheel championship and, and kind of stick it on the books? Like, that makes a lot of sense. And it also just makes a lot of sense in terms of symmetry, right? That there could be a lot of shared technology, a lot of sy- symmetry, a lot of teams that compete in both series. Like it just logically, you could see it coming together. Now, the Indy Championship is still 
vastly different than the Formula One championship. It still has a heavy mix of ovals. And culturally, I think it's still very much in, in a different place. And I think it's still tending to the wounds that were a result of the split back in the mid-90s. And it's probably in a better place now, both financially and and culturally than it has been in a very, very long time. But these rumors specifically come from F1 commentator and Peter Windsor, who on his YouTube channel a couple of days ago had made a couple of comments that got picked up by the media. One of the things he said was, one of the things Liberty are looking at at the moment, and this is quite a good idea, is buying IndyCar to make it effectively an American feeder series for F1, which I think will infuriate every traditional IndyCar fan in the world. <laughs> yeah, you think? How they would do that, he continues, I don't know. Maybe get rid of some of the ovals and make it even more road coursey. Maybe make the cars a little bit more F1-like, maybe carbon brakes or whatever. Maybe that's why Zach Brown, McLaren chief executive, is there. I don't know. That's not a completely stupid idea. And he continues, I think it's quite a cool idea, actually, because it's a place where you could put a lot of good, talented drivers who can't make it into Formula One and then they can go and do this American series. It makes sense to me to do that. I, I agree that logically, from a business perspective and from a marketing and a commercialization perspective, I think there could be some symmetries, but I just fear there would be some significant opposition. And the opposition is actually coming from the current owners of the NTT IndyCar series, who took very very strong exception to these stories these stories earlier this week and speaking at long beach and this is an article this is from racer.com but speaking at long beach penske corporation president bud denker provided an unequivocal answer when asked about the rumor and whether penske entertainment who had actually only purchased the ndt indycar series back in 2020 was interested in selling indycar or its other marquee property the indianapolis motor speedway because ims and indycar are for all business intensive purposes kind of locked at the hip he writes there's no truth to any of that. There's been no discussion, and frankly, we wouldn't selling it. Being the stewards of the Indy 500 and being stewards of the IndyCar series go hand in hand. We bought the series and bought the Speedway in 2020, and as long as we own both of those, they're going to stay together. So really what he's saying is they're going to stay together. He's not necessarily saying they wouldn't sell both of them if the offer was right. But I think that they're probably also recognizing that, hey, a high tide lifts all ships. I think that's the expression. A high tide lifts all ships. And if F1's enjoying this massive boom in popularity and and profitability, then maybe IndyCar can as well. And they're probably not going to be in a hurry to sell it. But that's not to say that that they couldn't be persuaded with a very, very nice, tidy offer from Liberty at some point. Excuse me, like everything and everyone has their price. And, you know, I mean, he doesn't say that they they would never sell, but they're just, uh, he's, he's basically saying that they wouldn't sell it with the intention, like if somebody had the intention to split IndyCar and the Indy 500 up. And, and, and I think that's a good point, right? The Indy 500 is an iconic race and it wouldn't be the same if... Um, if if the two entities were, were 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 split up, so who knows? It uh, it may happen, it may not happen, but uh, certainly a nice juicy uh, story to talk about. Now another story that uh, you know couldn't uh, you know picked uh, you know you know or grabbed my attention right away is the fact that uh, former Haas driver Nikita Mazepin has uh, taken the what the Canadian government to court uh, because they uh, he's well he's unfair about like uh, sanctions that uh, were imposed against him and his family after uh, the uh, you know uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine he says that these sanctions are unfairly hurting his career and uh, he's uh, taken the the um, I guess the departments whatever it is uh, uh, you know, foreign affairs uh, minister to try and uh, to, you know do something to remove the sanctions against him, and uh, you know, 
maybe there's something to that, but I think that the can, you know the can I just be very clear here that his father is very much an established oligarch yeah. that if if we recall at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine that his father, like many oligarchs, were summoned to Moscow to have personal updates from Vladimir Putin on what was happening that that these these sanctions are appropriate given the circumstances that are that are happening here it's just it's obviously a little bit enlightening for us that it's happening so close to home in terms of this young driver thinking that it's appropriate to take our government to court yep. to relieve he and his family of of the sanctions that are being placed above upon them because of their association with the with the Russian regime. Yeah, you know, I just kind of find it a little bit ironic that, you know, he's blaming like the the lack of progress on his career on sanctions when, you know, he should be looking a little closer towards himself and, you know, his his level of talent and, and where he, he he wants to raise at. So anyways, right. CTV.com, by the way, Canada has sanctioned hundreds of Russian individuals and organizations over Moscow's attack on Ukraine, prohibiting financial dealings linked to Canada. Mazapan's notice of application filed in court says he is a young sportsman and professional motorsports driver who is in no way involved in the aggression suffered by Ukraine, nor engaged in any economic sectors providing substantial revenue to Russia. The sanctions, the article continues, hinder Mazapan's ability to take part in racing events in Canada or have dealings with Canadians, which catastrophically reduces his eligibility for a return to the Formula One circuit next year. So I think the other takeaway here too is Mazapan has this diluted um, or diluted sense that there's an opportunity for him to return to the grid. And if if not for his off-the-track antics, his on-the-track antics, and his associations with an oligarch father, um, I still don't think his skill would be enough to, to warrant consideration to return to the grid. Yeah, not at this uh, current time. I mean... Uh yeah, I don't know. Nothing further to add to that one. Uh, moving along to the next article from Jerry Perez over at thedrive.com. And in an interview with the Drive's editor-in-chief, uh, Michelin CEO Florent Menago, uh, explained that even though Michelin is, um, you know, they still consider return to Formula One an option, they are not really very keen on the fact that Formula One relies on tire degradation to improve the show of the sport. So very interesting. So anyways, uh, Menago had to say, quote, the question is, how do we leverage technology to have a good show? And that's where F1 comes into play because we have been discussing with them for a very long time and we are not in agreement because F1 say to have the show, you have to have tires that destroy themselves. And I think we, Michelin, don't know how to do this, so we cannot agree. Teams should be understanding that tire performance and capitalizing on the fact that the tire is going to be performing from the first lap around the circuit to the last. The drivers will tell you that they want to be at their maximum all the time. And when I hear that uh, drivers in Formula One, I like Formula One, but say, no, no, it's not possible, he added. So, end quotes. It's it's interesting, right? And it's funny because I remember going back and watching a race in the um, the F1 TV Pro archive. I think it was like the 1986 or 7 British Grand Prix or something like that. And I think it was Nelson Meek, uh, PK and uh, Nigel Mansell for Williams. They were just dominating. They were lapping cars within no time. I think they stopped like once in the race. And uh, if that even, I mean, it's been a little while since I rewatched that one. And I was thinking, well, you know, why were the tires so good back in the 1980s? They had these tire compounds that could last that long in a race. So you fast forward almost 40 years and the tires, they, they have to have these compounds where the tires degrade and, you know, is considered 
like almost an essential ingredient to what makes modern Formula One. So I've kind of come to accept that. But when you kind of look at it from that different perspective, like, you know, the, you know, Menigo from, uh, from, from Michelin is talking, it, it, it seems a little bit illogical, doesn't it, Mark? It totally does. And I thought this was a, a really great article. And a couple of weeks ago, you and I had talked about the fact that the FIA was effectively taking bids or accepting bids for a new tire supplier. So originally, Pirelli's deal was up at the end of this year because of COVID. It got extended until the end of 2024. So the FIA is looking for a new tire supplier for 25 onwards. And I think this article is pretty clear that Michelin's like, look, we would love to partner with Formula One, but we're not doing it on your terms. And the current terms are that if you're going to provide tires to Formula One, they need to be engineered in such a way that the performance just falls off or just craters after a certain point that Michelin's saying, we just want to be able to build the best, most robust, fastest tires possible. But what you're telling us is that that we compete in Formula One, we need to engineer a tire that is designed to fail. And they, they want that. And he says a couple of times in this article, in that quote that you were reading, for the show, for the show. And I don't know that that's because you explicitly want to make the experience more challenging for drivers, if you want to make the strategy more compelling, if you want to force those pit stops. I mean, you do that anyways, because you have the rule that you have to run on two different compounds, except in a wet weekend. But I have never been a fan of this, that I would prefer just to give the drivers the best possible tire and let them race at the the peak of their ability, or as um, one of our former listeners has once said, like, let them race on the edge of adhesion yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. Like, don't 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 be concerned about having a tire that's engineered to drop off. And how much of the conversation that you and I have had over the past three or four years has been dominated by, did they get the compounds right? Are they failing too quickly? Like, it's just, it's so much about let's not just build the best possible race tire to put on the best possible show, which is letting these drivers race at the peak of their ability, but rather let's construct and engineer a tire that will fail and force strategy upon the teams. And I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm wrong, but I totally get where Michelin's coming from. And so long as that is the perspective of FOM and the FIA that they want to engineer tires that fail over a certain number of laps, you're likely never going to attract a, a tire manufacturer like Michelin. And maybe they're fine with that because pre has been doing it. They've been partnered with the FIA and Formula One for 13 years now, an exclusive provider, and that's probably not going to change. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of compare those uh, comments uh, from from uh, Michelin to Pirelli Motorsport Director uh, Mario Solo said uh, that they're very happy with the performance of their new tire compounds uh, this season, and he believes that they've hit the, the, the performance targets that they gave themselves. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because their contract with Formula One is a- up at the end of uh, 20 2024 and he kind of hinted as to what they were you know what 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 they're thinking at where they're at right now anyways uh, in an interview with the official formula one um, website isola said quote i'm happy because the targets were to obviously increase for the new construction the level integrity which we have done because they're using a lower pressure the second point was about reducing the understeer and also in this case i believe the new construction is helping to balance the car and the one, the third one was to test this new C1 compound that was working quite well in Bahrain. We are also trying to understand if we can use it more in more races. If it's close to the C2, he's talking about tire compounds here. If it's close to the C2, so maybe sometimes we can replace C2 with the C1. We need to get a bit more data and to agree with the FIA allocation. But yeah, the new package is working as expected. So I'm quote. Anyways, uh, he goes on to say uh, just regarding their um, their future in the 
the sport. He said that um, that they're they're happy for Pirelli to continue in Formula One, adding, "quote It's never an easy decision to continue in F one because we invest a lot of resources and money in Formula One, but we are happy with the results so far." 13 years is a long period, and to continue for another three, four years is also a bigger commitment. But the sport is very healthy. We are happy with the current situation. We are happy to play our part in the sport, as I said, and to follow the requests that are coming from the drivers, the teams, FIA and F1, to have a sport that is even better if it is possible. So now we are in the process of analyzing the document that is quite long. It's different from the past with a lot more pages to analyze. But as I said, the general feeling that is we want to apply and to continue, it's a process and we will wait for the end of the process, end quote. I mean, 13 years as the the, the tire supplier in Formula One is indeed a very, very long time. But, you know, if if they're happy to continue and Formula One's happy with uh, what they're doing, if the FIA are happy with what they're doing, the teams, the drivers, etc. Agreed. Agreed. Is there really any motivation for Formula One to really engage with the Michelins, the Firestones, the Goodyears, whoever of the world, and try and bring them on board when you know the you know to continue with the status quo just seems to be you know maybe it's not ideal, but I guess uh, you could just say if it ain't broke, don't fix it uh, kind of thing. So some uh, interesting comments and insight from. Uh, Pirelli Motorsport Director Mario Asola. Anyways, let's take a, a quick break here, Hammy. We'll come back in uh, just a moment and we'll pick up with uh, some other news here and we'll do so in just a moment. So please don't go away. We will be right back. All right, welcome back to the show, and we're going to talk now just uh, about the potential of rotating races. And uh, this is another article from uh, Racing News uh, 365, and then it's uh, from uh, Dieter Renkin. And uh, Formula One chief Stefano Domenicali said he's open to the idea of rotating Grands Prix in the future as the calendar gets bigger. What were we talking about last week, Mark? Was it up to 30 races is what uh, they're potentially uh, eyeing, but which is just a a huge number that I can't quite uh, comprehend. Anyways, um, Domenicali believes that this rotation idea might be a little bit uh, flawed, and he points uh, specifically to some of the G- uh, German race uh, tracks like uh, Hockenheim and the Nürburgring. And uh, so it, it sounds like he's trying to throw a little bit of water and try and cool off uh, this idea, which is uh, something that uh, that you I and I kind of were thought might work, right? It's smart. So you alluded to something a couple of minutes ago, which is I think – for the first few years that you and I were talking about, there was this, there was this suspected understanding that Liberty wanted to get to 25 races and we're effectively there. And I I think they're starting to, I think they're starting to trial this concept of getting to 30 races. And I don't doubt for a second, that's where Liberty wants to get to. And I spoke a couple of minutes ago about Liberty wants to show value to its showholder or shareholders, and it wants to show growth. And you show growth by expanding the show, by having more races, more sure. TV income, more streaming revenue, et cetera. They want to get to 30 races. And I think as part of that, I think Dominicali is beginning to float this idea of rotational concepts. So look, you know what? Um, we're going to go and we're going to negotiate with you on a biannual deal. So rather than you being on the calendar every year, we're going to put you on biannually. And I've made this exact comment in the past, which is it's far less 
economical to participate in a rotation because whether you're participating annually or biannually, you still have to pay for all of the infrastructure to support the track. That look, if if I'm a private race organizer or I'm a local or state government and I'm helping to subsidize it, whether that race is happening every year or every second year, I still need to pay the 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 I still need to pay the mortgage. I still need to pay the insurance, the bills and the maintenance of that track. And you know, Dieter writes a really kind of smart comment here in his article on racingnews365.com. And he says, ultimately, the reason comes down to elementary economics. What looks good on paper, which is this concept of rotational races. So like, let's say you're going to have two races in Spain and they're going to rotate every single year. The reason comes down to elementary economics. What looks good on paper holds major implications for infrastructure improvements and operational costs, which can only be amortized over double the payback period or thrice that where three Grand Prix rotate annually. Consider this, a circuit needs to upgrade grandstands or its pit buildings or whatever at a cost of 10 million pounds. So 2 million per annum over five years under an annual race contract. However, under a race share deal, that payback is 10 years or even 15 years with triple share. Difficult to sell the backers, be they politician, banks, or investors. Thus, the choice for promoters is no deal or no upgrades increase or creating a vicious cycle as Germany discovered, of course, with Nürburgring and Hockenheim. And of course, that's where we saw that kind of forced rotational basis, which ultimately led to a situation where both of the tracks were underdivested in, where local authorities and state governments um, soured on the idea of subsidizing the events. And now, despite the fact that we have all these great German OEMs in the sport and all these great German drivers, we don't have a, a race in, in that country. So I think what he's suggesting here is that conceptually, maybe it makes sense, but at an individual business level, if you're if you're trying to host a race and break even, it can't possibly it can't possibly make sense. But I think what this story also does do is tell us that F1 wants to get to a world with 30 races. And I think that's going to be a conversation you and I will continue to have for many years until it becomes a yeah, reality. Yeah, it certainly seems that once it uh, becomes like a topic of a discussion that it'll just uh, eventually move there because as you so correctly pointed out uh, just a few mi- uh, minutes ago that that uh, 25 seems to have been the, the, the magic number that they were targeting. And like you say, we're pretty much there right now. I mean, we, we, we lost a race uh, this year, but that uh, we kind of ran down off the top of the show what's coming up over the ne- the next five weeks it's like yeah this this um you know that this month-long imposed break is going to become a distant memory pretty quickly because we got a whole host of races coming up really really quickly and we're just going to run from from one thing to another so i guess you know my only real question is is um you know logistically can they pull it off and Apparently, people like uh, Stefano Domenicali must think that it's possible. Otherwise, they wouldn't be throwing that out there. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be any outrage or you know, gasps of exasperation or horror coming from the teams themselves kind of like makes me read between the lines that at least in principle that they think that this you know might be workable because let, let, let's face it, Mark, if, if, if the feeling in the paddock was that that 30 races a year just isn't doable. The fact that you have like the, the formula one CEO coming out and saying something and they don't react has to be some sort of indicator that, that at least theoretically they're, they're, you know, they must be open to it. Yeah. Daily. I, I completely agree with everything that you're saying that it's, it's not that they're complicit in their silence. It's that they benefit from this, right? That 
Ultimately, for every additional race on the calendar, it's more money in the prize pot to be distributed amongst the constructors. Um, and ultimately, they all benefit from that. And maybe there'll be a threshold where people start to speak out. But I also think there's very smart people in the FIA and Formula One and on the teams, and they'll find a way to manage a longer schedule. But ultimately, the bigger, longer schedule benefits all of the teams so long as there's incremental revenue associated with it. And Stefano Domenicali isn't going to sign a new race to the calendar unless they get that 30, 40, 50. million of incremental um, revenue. Okay, moving along to the next story. So Formula One has agreed to a new uh, partnership with uh, Paramount Plus, which is uh, very interesting and maybe kind of hints as to what might uh, be happening when the Formula One TV rights, uh, you know, or streaming rights, whatever it might be, come up for 2026. Currently, the home of Formula One in the United States is uh, ESPN. But on uh, Paramount uh, Plus, we've seen a number of uh, top-level sports, including the NFL, UEFA Champions League, the Masters, and PGA Golf. And uh, Paramount Plus is kind of hinting that F1 uh, involvement could uh, eventually move to their platform in 2026 and uh, beyond. So that Mark, this is a very, very interesting story because you know I I think that um, at, at some point, if things continue to get uh, or kind of continue in the same direction, uh, continue on the sort of trending as they are, that somebody's going to come in and make a substantially bigger offer for the, uh, the 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 rights to Formula One, especially in in the USA. I don't have those numbers off the the, the, the top of my head, but I remember when they renewed with ESPN was was it last year was it the year before that it certainly was an increase on what they they paid for the rights previously in 2018 or whatever it was but I still kind of felt at the time that even though I, hmm, I feel like they could have gotten more out of ESPN for this uh, for, for this deal but uh, it, it kind of makes you wonder when you hear other entities other corporations like Paramount Plus kind of tossing their their hat into the ring to a certain extent at least when they're hinting saying that it might be something they want to look at in the future it's uh, something certainly to keep an eye on mark your thoughts yeah i think that deal that you allude to by the way the espn deal that was inked i think in october of last year it was a three-year deal worth 75 to 90 million annually so i agree with you that yeah. in 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 the in the spectrum of where live sports TV deals are right now, that one's relatively small. $90 million for 23 race weekends is a pretty pretty decent bargain. Um, ESPN, yeah. of course, uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw, again, Matt, again, their sixth wave of massive cuts. So from a personnel perspective, they continue to cut talent, but I think they continue to stock up whenever possible on live sports because live sports continues to be that one reliable thing that draws people to streaming platforms into to broadcast TV, whether it's over the air or on, on a cable network. But yeah, I think it's interesting as well that in a way, Paramount Plus is something of a competitor to to ESPN and the Disney and the Disney monster. So maybe there's something there long-term, but I think you're right that I think Formula One FOM is going to work very closely over the next couple of years to make sure that the next deal, the deal subsequent to the current ESPN deal, will be something that will make all of us, will make all of us uh, smile. 
A couple of other quick stories I think we should probably run through before we get to before we get to our race preview, which is probably going to be the best part of the show because I get so excited about Baku and ah, I'm going to hold that off. But a couple of other stories. Motorsport.com is reporting that F1 has abandoned the LED wheel cover light system that was planned for 2024. According to Motorsport.com, the idea of cars running LED wheel covers display extra information to fans has been considered for several years, and the option was even there in the rules for them to be introduced for racing if the technology was ready. As long as as long as long ago as the 2021 postseason test in Abu Dhabi, McLaren trialed this LED light system on his cars amid hopes that they would be used to help fans better understand what was going on during sessions or the races. Um, and this continues in motorsport.com. Pirelli's head of car racing at F1, Mario Asola, who we spoke to a couple of minutes ago, or at least heard from a couple of minutes ago, said the options for the information that could be displayed through the LEDs was limitless. Speaking at the time, he said, when you fit this LED light device and the device is working, you can do whatever you want. You can display the position, you can display logos, you can display the lap time of qualifying or something like that. There are many possibilities. You have the technology, so it's easy to program what you want to display. Motorsport.com continues in revised technical regulations for 2024. The rule detailing the potential introduction of the LED systems has been removed, which officially rules out any possibility of them coming into play. So I think that was going to be something that would have been neat. It would have looked cool on TV, would have been very cool in night races, but as a mechanism to display information to TV viewers and viewers that are physically in place at the race, it looks like it's not going to be something that happens in the immediate immediate future. The last news article, Mr. Daly, before we jump to the Baku race preview, is that Silverstone, again, according to motorsport.com, has modified the turn one runoff area in response to that incredibly incredibly scary Zhu F1 crash that we had seen last year. According to motorsport.com, a slow launch from George Russell to trigger contact with Alpha Tauri of with the Alpha Tauri of Pierre Gasly sent the Mercedes spinning into Zhu on the approach to the turn one right-hander last year. The collision with rookie Zhu was enough to flip his car, which then skated on its roll hoop across the asphalt before digging in through the gravel trap. The Alpha then became airborne to clear the tire barrier until it was stopped by the catch fencing, although the car then dropped between the two safety devices to leave the driver temporarily stuck in the cockpit. So in response to this, it sounds like Silverstone is making some not insignificant changes to prevent that from happening again, or at least mitigate the possible negative impact or harm that could be impacted upon the driver. Silverstone has modified the first corner runoff by removing the gravel bed approximately 45 meters deep to be replaced by a larger section of asphalt. Silverstone Managing Director Stuart Pringle told Motorsport.com, we've done a load of work this winter. There's a big piece of asphalt out the front rather than the gravel. This is to stop them digging in. It's the digging in bit that was the real issue there last year. So some uh, constant changes, which obviously is being promoted by race organizers in the FIA in response to incidents that we've seen in the past couple of years. And of course, my friend, I know you and I talked about this extensively last summer, but that was a terrifying terrifying moment to see that happen. And of course, we actually had listeners that were physically at the track when it happened. And I think it was possibly even scarier for them because they saw it happen and wouldn't have had the information. We were watching live on TV and they cut away, but at least we were getting constant updates from the Sky Sports feed or from the F1 TV Pro app feed that, hey, look, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. But again, it's good to see um, race organizers in the FAA being very, very responsive and proactive to incidents like this. And that gravel where the digging happened has now been replaced by a giant swath of asphalt. Yeah, you know, that's uh, great to see. And uh, Mark, just uh, apologies. Uh, I'm having some technical problems here. So I've had to 
unfortunately switch over to the internal mic on my uh, my recording station here. So apologies, everyone, uh, for that. But yeah, going back to what you're saying, uh, I, I think it's uh, fantastic that they're they're taking the initiative here because. I thought it was very well documented that whole juke uh, crash in the last season of Drive to Survive because when you saw it from all those different angles, you saw it in, in the you know in, in the high resolution pictures. It was really, really, really scary because it, you know, like like they typically do, whenever there's a problem, like whenever there's a crash of that magnitude, they immediately cut away um, while the like the marshals and the, the the first responders do that their their bit in case there is a serious injury to the driver or anyone in the close uh, proximity to the accidents uh, at the periphery of the the, the, the track. But I'm glad that they're 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 doing something and trying to get that sorted so that uh, crash that we saw with Joe Guan Yu last year was uh, certainly um, hopefully the only one of its type that we see. Anyways, Mark, before we jump into the preview of the race this weekend, we had a nice uh, email from uh, Matt Lachance and uh, Matt says, hello there, long time listener here. My girlfriend got us three-day tickets to the Canadian Grand Prix and I'm super excited to go to my first race. Any tips that you have for going to a race in person? Also, Danny Ricardo to Red Bull in 2024. That would be a spicy championship. Why do I, when I read that would be a spicy championship, why do I hear that in Danny Ricardo's voice in my mind? But first of all, thanks for the for the email, Matt. And also, you know, awesome. You have a fantastic girlfriend to arrange those tickets for you. And, and typically we get um, a number of emails like this uh, throughout the year. And there, there's a number of different things that uh, you can do. Uh, when you go to a race, um, you know, Mark and I, we always kind of have our little primer for, 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 for races. And certainly I think uh, the number one thing is take advantage of everything that your passes give you access to, not just qualifying, not just the race. If you, you have access to do like a walk up and down the pit lane to all the support series, Anything that you get access to, try and take advantage of it. It sounds like, oh, yeah, three days, that's going to be a lot of stuff to do. Yes, it will be. It will be absolutely uh, worth the the opportunity to do so. Matt, I don't know if you live in the Montreal uh, area. I was in Montreal last summer. And one thing that you're able to do is um, you can walk around um, the circuit Vilnev. You can ride a bike. You can drive your car. I think that if you if you're on your car, you for sure cannot do the entire uh, lap of the track. You can't go around the hairpin at the very top end of the circuit. They kind of cut that part off. But you can drive around at a maximum of thirty kilometer uh, thirty kilometers an hour. But if you're on your bike or rollerblades, you can go about as fast as uh, you want to. But Certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, if you live in the area or you're ever in Montreal, and this goes for everyone, not just to Matt, that it does give you a different perspective when you are able to go around and tour it like I did. And certainly when we see the uh, the, the race this summer, it's going to give me a new uh, perspective. Mark, I know like I've uh, said a bunch of things here. I know you have a different perspective when it comes to things like that, too, because you always like to take your camera to Formula One races. So you look for a different set of uh, things where you want to kind of set up and get a good viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. In addition to a lot of the things that I was talking about as well, right? So just to build on a couple of things that you were saying, I I think my recommendations are, um, one, be there as early as you possibly can be, that the attendance at the North American Grand Prix events right now are 
are absolutely astronomical and there's going to be a huge press of people, people trying to get to the merch, people trying to get to the best general admission positions, people just jockeying for position within the track. And if you want to make it a really great weekend, you want to spend every minute that you can at the track. So I just, I check now and I think the Canadian Grand Prix track opens at 7.30 on Friday, 7.30 on Saturday and 8 o'clock on Sunday. Be there an hour before that or at least get a sense from the community because you're going to bump into people at the airport, you're going to bump into people at the hotel or wherever you're staying. Get a sense but i feel like last year there was lineups starting as early as 6 a.m and if you're a general admission folks um and you're going to be jockeying or fighting for a really great general admission viewing perspective you're going to want to get there as early as possible the other consideration is uh circus Gilles villeneuve is good because you can bring in your own food and drink you can't bring in your own alcohol and if you're like me that's irrelevant anyways um but if you can bring in your food make sure you bring your own water bottle bring some food because track food is obviously going to be very very expensive um and if you do intend to buy merch, which isn't always advised because you can usually get a better deal in advance online. Um, merch will often sell out over the course of the weekend. So if you did have your eye on something, I would grab it on the Thursday or the Friday, or not the Thursday, but certainly on the Friday because it might sell out by the end of the weekend. And then kind of uh, for Mark's perspective too, like I love taking photos. So I'll spend a lot of time on Google Google um, Street, not Google Street, Google Maps. And I'll, I'll kind of plot out the map and look at all the sight lines and things. And that, in fact, that, that actual behavior works really good for kind of figuring out really good general admission positions as well. But I'll spend a lot of time on Google Maps trying to find the best position and the best view pers- viewpoint and things like that and kind of map out the the event. But I, I would just recommend spend as much possible time at the track you get. It's a one-shot deal. It's one weekend. You may never go to a Grand Prix again. Don't leave early. Don't go late. Just try to spend as much time there and absorb as much of it as you can. And then finally, um, interact and talk to people because it's probably not... It might be the first time in your life that, or maybe the last time in your life as well, that you're going to be around 100,000 people on any given day that are all as passionate about the sport as you are. And I still have tons of people that I follow on Twitter and Instagram that I met at Formula One Grand Prix. So it's a great opportunity to build relationships as well. But Matt, great question. And thanks for listening. And thanks for the support. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And and, and above all, I hope that uh, you and your girlfriend really enjoy going to the Canadian Grand Prix in a couple of months uh, from now. Hammy, is it time? Is it time to now preview, do our first re- race preview in almost a month? It seems a little bit crazy to, to actually have to say that, but it has been that long. So uh, here we go, the the Azerbaijan Grand Prix at the Baku City Circuit. We've been there five times uh, before, 2017, 20, well, well, ever since 2017. We didn't go there uh, in 2020 because of COVID back there in 21 and 22. So five times uh, that uh, we've been there, we've had five different winners, three Red Bull winners, and every single Red Bull winner has been different, starting with Danny Ricardo back in 2017, Sergio Perez, and then Max Verstappen uh, uh, winning last year and then in 2018 and 2019 we had uh, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas win for Mercedes this is a very very long track it's just a hair over six kilometers long or 3.73 miles a race length of 306.05 kilometers or 190.17 miles long only 51 laps the uh, pole time last year was set by Charles Leclerc was a, a 141.35 and the the fastest lap of the race last year was set by uh, Sergio Perez and uh, he clocked in at a 146.046 now I, I'm just trying to check uh, check I should pull up the the lap times from from Belgium I think Spa is still slightly longer isn't it are we pushing just over like a 150 or 153 or 54 so 
just not that much longer, but these are, you know, Baku is one of the longest tracks uh, on, on the circuit. And I must admit, I, I quite like this one. I was, I was, when they went back there in 2017, I remember when I saw the track layout before the first race there, I was a little bit like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about this, especially when you go around the backside of the circuit where they go through that very tight complex of turns around where there's actually a castle on the uh, on the side of the track. And did we see Charles uh, crash there during qualifying? When was that? What year was that? Was that 2019, 2021? I think it was 2021, wasn't it? So uh, certainly we've seen a lot of uh, drama. Then we saw that incident uh, with uh, Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton behind the the, the, the safety car uh, in one of the earlier runnings uh, of this one where, where Seb believed that Lewis had uh, brake tested him, which he actually didn't. And then Vettel pulled his car alongside Lewis's and then proceeded to start bashing into him like he was an angry shopper with a shopping cart on a black friday sale or something bizarre like that but anyways i i like this track it is uh, obviously very very fast in some places and um, you know a little bit uh, scary when you hit that uh, dog leg from turns 19 to 20 and then you head back down the long straight uh, to start finish and then you throw it into that 90 degree uh, turn at turn one and then again it turns two three and four and five and six they're all a lot of right angle turns and you go from you know top end speed 200 miles an hour plus to some very very slow corners but I like it. I think that the, the the track has a nice flow to it. It has a nice rhythm, and to to me, it's become it's become a race I really enjoy watching. How about you, Mark? Yeah, I definitely look forward to it. I'll, I'll add one quick caveat though: that 2017 was the first year of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, but it wasn't the first year we were at this track. 2016 was actually the first year that we raced at the Baku Street Circuit. It was actually branded the European Grand Prix that year. So this is actually 16, 17, 18. I guess this would be going on our seventh race there because, of course, like you suggested, we weren't there in 2020. But this would be number seven, of course, in 2016. The race was won by Nico Rosberg. That was, of course, his championship year. He also qualified on pole. But for many of the same reasons that that you indicated, I, I really do like this track. And I also just like the fact that it it creates and it it often manifests a little bit of chaos for a variety of different reasons that we obviously saw that in 2021, where we saw some issues with tires, which were very scary. We saw Lance go out. We saw Max go out. We then on the race restart, we saw Hamilton go straight through because he was having issues with managing his brakes. Um, and of course, we've seen some other chaotic things as well. Um, it is an interesting track in the sense that it has an extremely long, roughly 2.2 kilometer long straight um, that sees cars touch on some of the highest top speeds that we see on the entire calendar. Um, and that that is spectacular in an engineering sense, but it's also a little bit scary because the brakes and the tires get very cool. And when you approach that true hairpin of a T, not even a, a hairpin, that 90 degree turn at T1, it can, it can obviously be a little bit scary. And in 2018, of course, that was the final year of the partnership between Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo. And also a year after Daniel Ricciardo won this Grand Prix, we saw them come together right, right at the cusp of, of T1. But I do, I do like the circuit. Part of it is just because 
because it can create a little bit of chaos because at least like you said on the backside, it's very tight, it's very windy, there's walls along both sides. There's almost no room, no margin for error in the sector of the track close to that castle on the back portion of the track. The other thing that we should be that we should be talking about and we would be reminiscent if we not reminiscent, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about is the fact that the FIA Formula One decided to make this a sprint race this year. And the sprint race format is different than it was last year. So I want to quickly kind of touch on that. So this weekend's going to be packed. Friday, we're going to have free practice one, and then we're going to have qualifying. And that qualifying is a traditional qualifying that will be to set the grid for the Sunday Grand Prix. Saturday, we're going to have qualifying in the morning for the sprint race. And in the afternoon, we're going to have the sprint race itself. And of course, Sunday, we're going to have the Grand Prix. Now, that's a new format, and it's a format that I'm a huge advocate of. But since even that was announced, there's been announcements about changes to the sprint race qualifying session. So what is loosely being called the sprint shootout will have an entirely new format. And I'm going to read this to you here. This is from Oliver Harden at PlanetF1.com. The sprint shootout, which is going to happen again on Saturday morning, immediately before the sprint race, the sprint shootout will follow the standard Q1, Q2, Q3 format, but with minor differences with the timing of each segment reduced and a requirement to run mandated tire compounds. The new SQ1 will be short to 12 minutes with only medium tires allowed with SQ2 also run on the media comment compound and lasting just 10 minutes. The pole position shootout SQ3 will be cut to eight minutes with the soft compounds used by all drivers. It is hoped that these revisions will leave a smaller margin for error for teams and drivers, increasing jeopardy and potentially resulting in more unpredictability. So right away, the weekend's going to be unpredictable because teams have one practice session to dial in the setup for their cars. Because after that practice session on, on Friday, you go into park Fermi conditions and your setups are locked. So teams have one shot to get their setup dialed in for this weekend. And if it's not, you're going to be absolutely in a mess for qualifying for sprint qualifying, or I guess we now call it the sprint shootout, the sprint race and the Grand Prix. So there's going to be significantly more onus on that practice session on Friday morning than we would ever typically see. But if you're a TV viewer, this entire weekend is going to make for um, an absolute riot. And it's going to be a challenge, I think, for you and me, because we both work Friday. And it's going to be very hard to peel our eyes away from the app on our phone, because there's going to be so much that's going to be going on. And that's also one of the reasons why we wanted to tee this podcast up a day early is because if we did it on Thursday night, by the time you listen to it, practice and qualifying would already be over, at least qualifying for the Sunday Grand Prix. So we wanted to have a little bit of an opportunity to get in front of that, but the weekend is going to be absolutely crazy. And just in terms of a format, I'm I'm all in on this format that I hated the idea of a qualifying session setting the grid for both races. I hated the idea of the sprint results setting the grid for the race. To have a dedicated qualifying session for the Grand Prix and a dedicated, I guess we're calling it a sprint shootout or a sprint qualifying session for the sprint race makes total sense to me. Where the real risk and unpredictability for the teams is going to come in is one. They get, like I said, that one shot at setting up their cars and practice. And then again, if they do get into trouble this weekend, that setup's not dialed in, a driver makes a mistake or they get caught up in traffic, there could be real implications for this race and the rest of the season in terms of, you know, what suffering a power unit failure or losing a gearbox or an exhaust or any one of these pieces that you don't have an unlimited number to access before you start incurring grid penalties. So I think teams are probably very, very cognizant of that this weekend. And, you know, last week, the week before you 
and I were reflecting on some comments from Christian Horner about the fact that he thought this was a terrible place to have a sprint race. And I get it from a business perspective, but the teams also could have lobbied harder not to have had the race here. But from a purely spectacle perspective, it's going to be a marvelous weekend of TV, I think, for all of us sitting at home watching this Grand Prix. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that this uh, this new qualifying format and the new sprint uh, format that maybe the, the, these are the tweaks that uh, that they need to make to make this um, to, to really extract the potential that we all really hoped uh, that uh, that sprint qualifying would have, whereas the sprint races would have when they were introduced uh, not so long ago. I was just looking at just now, Mark, at the weather forecast uh, for, for the weekend. So on uh, Saturday, we are looking um, about race time, a temperature of about 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 27 degrees uh, Celsius. On Sunday, we are looking at a uh, temperature of about uh, 28 Celsius or 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Doesn't look like there's any precipitation uh, going to be, um, you know, happening on uh, on Sunday or Saturday. So it looks like we should have a nice dry weekend, and I think that's uh, going to be really, really uh, good. Something that uh, you know should lend nicely to the spectacle of the entire weekend. Anyways, Mark, we've been at it for quite a while now. Before we wrap this one up, I wanted to get uh, your perspective. Do you want to make some predictions for this one? Do you want to do you want to throw something out there as to what you who's going to end up on the podium? Are, are you feeling that bold or, or do you want me to do that uh, first? Okay, so what I will do I'll I'll go first. How about that, Mark? I will uh, I'll throw my predictions out uh, there, and I think that um, you know I mean it, it's been all Red Bull the first uh, couple of races uh, of the season. It's been it's been Max. It's been Sergio, and it'll be interesting though to see what has transpired over the past uh, three to four weeks for the other teams. Has uh, has Mercedes have Ferrari been able to pull things together? Will they be able? To much, uh, you know, have where they will they be able to challenge Red Bull this weekend in uh, Azerbaijan? I mean, uh, Red Bull have been running away from people on slower tracks so far this season. So I have to ask myself, what has changed in the um, you know this this interceding time between the last uh, you know the last race and this weekend? And whether or not uh, Red Bull will be able to, to fend them off, or they will still maintain that advantage. So I'm going to go with a um, I'm going to go with a podium of um, Max Verstappen winning this one. I'm going to go with a Sergio Perez coming home in second. I'm not going to show Fernando a little bit of love, although I'm going to keep my you know keep my options open that uh, they'll be able to maintain this good form of run. Aston Martin that isn't Fernando Alonso that we saw over the first uh, three races of the season I just feel after the um, the race in uh, Australia that uh, that maybe we're gonna see something a little bit more from uh, Mercedes and I'm predicting to see that uh, that Lewis Hamilton will end up third on the podium uh, this this uh, weekend anyways um, I'm gonna wrap it up which podium with, which, which podium which, which podium oh man and, th- and that's the thing right it's um yeah I, I was thinking of the race itself 
you know, sprint race. But that the sprint race. That's let's, the crazy let, thing. Let's, There's just yeah. Let's go with George Russell again. I think George. You know, he he's proven over the years that when he was at Williams, he was an exceptionally good qualifier. He kind of uh, you know earned that nickname, Mister Saturday. Not so much as a derogatory thing, but just the fact that he was able to do things with the Williams that he probably shouldn't have been able to do. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm liking George to do something in the sprint race on. on Saturday, and uh, he could very well, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give uh, George the shout out for um, for the win in the in the sprint race on Saturday. But I think on the race You're on still Sunday, optimistic. and then on Sunday, I think Lewis will get a podium. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to shake things up here. You know, I find it a little bit too predictable that it, you know, just uh, by always saying, oh, it's going to be Max and Sergio one and two. So I'm trying to think outside the box a little bit. So that's, uh, that's I appreciate where that, and yeah. I, I respect that as well. I just for anybody listening at home, by the way, that is still listening an hour and a half into this podcast i want to i want to apologize on both on behalf of both daily and myself i think we take a great sense of pride in the production quality of the show and both of us have been encountering just a flurry of technical issues tonight just a flurry so mr daily i i appreciate you and i respect the fact that you're gonna have to spend a lot of time piecing this together <laughs> um in terms of my predictions i i'm not even i'm not even necessarily sure where to start because we've still seen so little of the cars this year that it's it's hard to really appreciate which car is going to do well on this track from a deg perspective we know it's been largely resurfaced so that'll be helpful to the ferraris and the ferraris still have have some top end speed, but they're certainly creating a little bit more drag than is the Red Bull. So in the reality, when you talk about that 2.2 kilometer straight, that maybe the Red Bull should still have an advantage, especially if they can navigate some of the more technical parts of the track. The Aston Martins have clearly looked really good. And then Mercedes was very competitive in that last race weekend. So really anything can happen. I think the key, the key to having a predictable outcome is that we get through the first five to 10 laps without too many issues. But even if you do, there's still a very strong likelihood that you're going to get a VSC or a safety car, which is going to bring the field back together again. So I, I think because of the nature of the track, I think we're going to see a very unpredictable race weekend, possibly an unpredictable sprint as well, simply because there's so many points on the line this year versus prior year. And I don't think the Red Bulls, and I, I could be proven totally wrong, but I don't think the Red Bulls or any car for that matter are going to be able to put together a 30 second, 40 second, 20 second lead on the rest of the pack. Cause I think the pack's going to continue to get brought together by VSCs and safety cars, but I'm not as brave as you. I'm not going to put a prediction down on paper. I hope it's something really surprising. I hope that you and I can sit here in three or four days and just remark back on a spectacle of a race weekend and really get into what the sprint shootout was like and what the sprint race was like in an unpredictable, unexpected outcome in, in the Grand Prix. But I just think it's going to be a really fun way to kick off what is kind of the second act of the season. You know, we've had the first act, which was winter testing in the first three. Now we're into the second act, then we'll have summer break and then we'll have the third act. But again, to everyone listening at home and to you, Mr. Daly, thank you so much for, uh, thank you for all your support. And Mr. Daly, I apologize. You're going to have to spend some time time piecing this podcast together tonight yeah I, I don't know what's going on with the gremlins because uh, usually everything's very very stable and i had a mic fail me on me tonight for the, the very first time ever so i really regret having to switch over to the you know the very cheap internal mic on my uh, my laptop but uh, it is what it is anyway so let's not tempt fate any uh, longer mark uh, thank you to one and all for listening to the show this week if you want to get in touch send us a tweet at scootery f1 pod or send us an email at scootery f1 pod at gmail.com gotta get through that uh, mail bag at uh, some point uh, got some uh, good uh, messages in there that we need to 
to uh, to answer. And um, until then, enjoy the race this weekend. We'll be back on Sunday night to wrap this one up. And until then, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.